Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man Montel Jordan, and this is how we do it. And right now, you're listening to Legal Face Off on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the high energy legal podcast with lawyers Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini. And they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues, sports, entertainment, politics. Nothing is off limits. Keep listening because this is how we do it. Hello and welcome into the latest installment of the Legal Face Off podcast on WGN Radio. I'm the moderator, Joe Brand. And as always, we're joined by our two hosts, Tina Martini of McDermott, Will and Emery, and Rich Lenkov of Downey and Lankov. Let's get right into the conflicts of abortion bans that have now reached an involvement of Jewish faith. With that, we bring in Miami law professor Caroline Malik-Corbin and graduate of Harvard and Columbia. Professor, thank you so much for the time today. Thank you for having me. So, Professor, with the fall of Roe versus Wade in June in the wake of Dobbs, religious groups are finding their beliefs being directly contradicted by states whose laws ban abortion. There are a number of states, including Missouri, Texas, Ohio, and Florida, where Jewish congregations are filing suit. We will be taking a closer look at a well-known Florida case in a moment, but high level, can you tell us a little bit more about what these lawsuits are alleging? Sure. So when you're focusing on the religion claims, there are two distinct types of claims. One of them is about separation of church and state, and one is about religious liberty. And basically, the separation of church and state argument is that by banning abortion, the state is codifying a theological point of view about when life begins. And laws should not be motivated by one religious one religion's perspective. So the separation of church and state argument is that you're violating the Establishment Clause by forcing one religious viewpoint on everybody else. The religious liberty claim is about the right of Jewish people to live their faith. Because in the Jewish tradition, life does not begin at the moment of conception, as these laws seem to assume. It begins at birth. Before then, the pregnancy is just considered part of the woman's body. Moreover, under Jewish law, the woman's well-being takes priority. And therefore, if a pregnancy threatens either her health or her psychological well-being, Jewish law mandates that the pregnancy end. And so laws that do not allow women to end pregnancies as their religion requires clearly infringes on their right to practice their Jewish faith. So, Professor, that part is really fascinating to me because I, um, I went to Jewish school from kindergarten until I got to the university up in Canada. And, you know, I know my Talmud from my Torah, and I thought I knew everything there was to know about these issues. But when I was reading the research last night, I was shocked to know how liberal, for lack of a better term, Jewish law is when it comes to abortion, right? I mean, we, in the United States, in the Western sort of legal system, we, uh, you know, conservatives tend to be anti-abortion. So I thought that Jewish law treated it the same. Jewish law is traditionally pretty conservative, right? We we know in, in many different areas uh, it, it could be. But it shocked me to hear what you're saying now and also reading the research, but also different tenets of Judaism treat yes. this issue a little differently, correct? The more orthodox right. 
way is the more conservative thought, maybe. Right. So, so, so Judaism is not a monolithic religion. There's reform, conservative, orthodox, and even within each of those strains, there are different views. But the view that life doesn't begin at conception is true across all those different branches. And so these laws very much reflect a particular religious viewpoint. And Jewish law, again, certainly with reform and conservative, and I'm not as familiar with all the different viewpoints within Orthodox, but this idea that that, that life is sacred, the woman's life is sacred. And so that the Jewish law requires that that sacred life be honored and protected. And these laws do not allow people of the Jewish faith to honor their religious requirements. So, Professor, turning to the Florida case filed by Rabbi Barry Silver, it's actually a series of cases. He filed one. He leads congregation Lador Bador, um, which practices progressive Judaism. There are three other rabbis, a United Church of Christ pastor, a Unitarian Universalist minister, an Episcopalian priest and a Buddhist Lama who have each filed lawsuits in Florida challenging that state's 15-week abortion ban, which became law on July 1st. Given that the Florida court, as we've seen with the U.S. Supreme Court, has turned sharply to the right, how likely is it that the various legal theories being presented in these cases are going to succeed? I, I cannot answer that question. Um, I think that there, and and again, this may too stray too far from the focus of your um, podcast, but there is also an explicit right to privacy in the Florida Constitution. So these cases also raise the claim that a ban on abortion violates Florida's own constitution, which unlike the federal constitution explicitly says the government may not intrude on your right to privacy, which has been interpreted to cover abortion. So I mention that because under existing Florida law, it's quite clear that the 15 week ban violates the Florida constitution. And so um, even under that claim, one would think this would be a fairly straightforward decision. But as you pointed out, the Florida Supreme Court had, like the Supreme Court has become exceedingly conservative. And so the question remains, are they gonna make decisions based on the existing law or are they gonna make decisions based on their particular viewpoint? and simply overrule precedent. And I, I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, it's a really interesting uh, question. And Professor, uh, we'll be talking in a moment about Professor, uh, Professor Pre- President Biden's uh, debt forgiveness um, you know, announcement uh, earlier this week and who has standing to sue the administration in opposition to that. Standing is an interesting issue here as well, especially when you're talking about some of the groups that are bringing lawsuits, like the rabbi groups, how are they going to prove standing when you're dealing with trying to assert that women have the right to privacy as um, translated to the right to you know, uh, abortion? Right. Standing is always an issue. And standing means 
is the correct party before the judge because courts generally can only decide, certainly in federal court, there has to be an actual controversy that the decision would affect. Um, interestingly, the, the second rabbi case bring claims not only on behalf of the women seeking abortions, but they also bring a free speech claim on their own behalf because now they're no longer certain whether they're able to counsel women in the way that they are feel religiously obliged to. So they feel that in certain situations when the woman is endangered in some way, they should recommend that she end the pregnancy. And now they're concerned that the Florida laws may make that illegal. So there are claim, potential claims not only on behalf of women seeking to end a pregnancy at some point, and there's, I don't think those lawsuits yet, but certainly doctors can bring religious conscience claims because they might argue not only does their Jewish faith mandate they perform abortions on women, but they can additionally believe that their, you know, their faith requires that they provide all medically necessary health care which could encompass not just Jewish people, but other people whose religion requires as a doctor, right, that they have not just an ethical obligation to provide necessary medical care, but a religious obligation. So you might have women bringing claims. You might have the rabbis who need to counsel bringing claims. You might have doctors bringing claims. And so there are different claims that could be brought by different people. Um, and there's also, of course, the question of third party standing, but that's probably not for today. <laughs> Again, that's Miami law professor Caroline Mala Corbin. Professor, thank you so much for all the insight today. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Downey and Lenkoff, a firm with offices in Illinois, Indiana, and Wisconsin. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like McDonald's, Target, Macy's, Wendy's, and the Chicago Bears for his zealous advocacy and outstanding litigation results. Rich's many accolades include being named as an Illinois super lawyer from 2015 to present and leading lawyer from 2012 to present. These are designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, serving on the Legal Prep Charter Academy Advisory Board and the Northern Illinois University College of Law Board of Visitors. Rich is also a producer with credits including 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and Mike Ditka. Renegades, a Caesars Palace production starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco and Jim McMahon, Rock of Ages, and Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel in Concert. In addition to hosting WGN's Legal Faceoff since 2014, Rich serves as a legal analyst for a variety of media outlets. Downey & Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Downey and & Lenkoff, please visit dl-firm.com. Welcome back to the Legal Face-Off podcast. Let's check out the big brains on Neil Elon and talk about the Pulp Fiction NFT lawsuit. It comes to us from the senior counsel at Stubbs, Alderton, and Markleys. He's also recently had an article regarding this issue on Forbes. Neil, thank you so much for the time today. Thanks for having me. Neil, in 1993, Quentin Tarantino, who's one of my favorite filmmakers, um, entered into an agreement with Miramax uh, for the distribution of Pulp Fiction. That was a uh, groundbreaking film at the time. Turns out to be groundbreaking for some other reasons that we're now dealing with. 
that weren't anticipated in the early 90s. There's a lawsuit, Miramax LLC versus Quentin Tarantino and Vigiana Romantica, Inc., in which there's a dispute about whether Quentin Tarantino should be allowed to sell off portions of the script that he hand wrote as an NFT. So remind our listeners, first of all, what an NFT is and why it applies in this case. Yeah, so an NFT is an acronym for the term non-fungible token. And what it is, is it's tantamount to a file on a computer, um, but more specifically, it can be authenticated. It's a ledger um, in an Excel spreadsheet, and it represents, um, it's a digital representation of a property right. So you can send, you can send an NFT to someone else, um, you can receive it, um, and you can use it in all sorts of applications. And in this case, it's being used as a digital representation of a property right for the um, Pulp Fiction NFT collection. And so um, recently, uh, less than a year ago, uh, Tarantino announced that he was launching an NFT collection based on Pulp Fiction. And um, in 93, 94, he entered into a series of agreements with um, Miramax, and the language in that operative in those operative agreements um, gave Miramax the right to production, distribution, and other rights that typically accompany motion uh, picture and film. And Tarantino had the reserved right for screenplay and print publication. And so the question and issue in this case is whether Tarantino was in his right to um, launch this NFT such that it. Um, falls within the definition of um, print publication, screenplay publication within the uh, license agreement. All right. So, Neil, obviously NFTs weren't around in, in 1994. So, you know, the courts will look at what the party's contract, I mean, any contract action, the judge or the, the jury is going to look at what the parties contemplated when they came up with the agreement versus what they are alleging now. So talk to our listeners and viewers about sort of what was um, agreed to in the letter of the contract and what the parties are now trying to apply when they are dealing with this one piece of, of intellectual property. Well, when the, the license agreements were entered into, um, NFTs weren't a thing. And so that has led to the current dispute. Um, what did the parties mean when they entered into the agreement? Um, in contract disputes, um, courts looked to the um, actual terms, the plain language, and what they intended by those terms. And so at the time of the agreement, they didn't know what NFTs were. And so typical publication screenplay production included um, making sequels, writing additional uh, um, screenplays, maybe having a branch off character. And so from that perspective, um, it, it might lend its support to Miramax's claim that, hey, you don't have the right to NFT. We didn't even know what NFTs were. How could we have given you this reserved rights when um, we're here um, financing and, and putting a lot of money into the production of the film? And um, from the other perspective, um, literal perspective, um, the NFT does centrally revolve around um, screenplay publication and it has uh, Tarantino's handwritten notes and um, it re reflects his creative genius in connection with the film. And so um, it, it's gray area, and um, there's no clear answer. It reminds me of a great Jimmy Fallon skit uh, that I love called uh, First Drafts of Rock. This concept is these are, you know, the first drafts of a popular song, and they get changed over time. But there's one skit where it involves ZZ Top, the song Legs, and they work texting into it 
And right after they say, what is texting? As they're singing, what is texting? It's 1983. But anyway, um, now NFTs are a thing, right? And um, in these kind of uh, deals, uh, the parties are contemplating and dealing with NFTs. So how has that issue evolved to now work itself into uh, these kind of agreements? Well, this is one of the first cases that um, concerns the issue. And so um, it's being handled in in real time live by um, parties in the um, entertainment industry and in other uh, industries who are looking to commercialize and launch NFTs. Some, um, in terms of new agreements, it's good to be specific with what your intent is, perhaps give some examples as to what rights you want and how you intend to use it so that in the future, if a new technology arises, even though there won't be um, 100% consistency between that technology and the language in the pre-existing agreement, you'll be able to at least surmise or infer based on what the parties intended. Um, it also gives the opportunity for parties to a pre-existing um, uh, license agreements to try to renegotiate or acknowledge and embrace that uncertainty and maybe reach some synergy with their counterparty in a license agreement. And um, permeating these issues with custom because custom and, and standard practices inevitably arise and kind of color the, the um, interpretation and enforcement of license agreements. Um. Yeah, you know, we often think as NFTs as you know something in the electronic medium. That's a a common example, but this is like the polar opposite, right? This is what they're fighting about is Quentin Tarantino's handwritten uh, script. I mean, he famously would write these in long form. Um, he explained that he didn't uh, type it out; he would send it to a typist. But his first draft would be literally in his own handwriting, and the um, allure of this particular uh, NFT is that it contains changes that are evident in the document. You know, for example, he says he changed uh, John Travolta's name from, I think, Edgar uh, Vega to Vincent Vega, which is now one of the most popular or, or you know, famous character names in his, in his filmography. Uh, I would love to have that piece of art. I consider it art. How relevant is it to this dispute that this is something that was very intimate to this uh, artist and uh, its uniqueness? Well, yeah, I mean, it, it certainly is relevant, um, but most important, the, the thing of ultimate relevance is what is the language of the contract and whether it falls into the definition of screenplay and print publication to the extent that the NFT is principally or exclusively um, reflective of his handwritten notes and screenplay, it would um, favor Tarantino. On the other hand, to the extent that the NFT incorporates video or audio or other elements that were first brought into the um, into the arena, um, into the film by Miramax, then um, it, it would lend support for Miramax. And so um, it, it kind of depends on a holistic interpretation and how strictly or, or loosely the contract is uh, being reviewed. Well, it's really interesting that you say that because it's it's almost, you know, we, we're dealing with a law and it is, you know, a legal issue, but it's almost a philosophical issue in some respects, even today, in terms of, you know, someone who creates a piece of art. Is there something inherent about the art that makes the, the one who produced it the owner or is it simply a matter of the agreement? Right. I mean, does it not matter who created it? Does it only matter what you agreed upon? We know that contracts, you know, to your earlier point, really trump anything else. Um, but when it comes to producing something like this, it's a little grayer. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and the public policy permeates the law. On the one hand, you do want to have um, 
parties' rights to be specifically delineated and courts to enforce that so private enterprise can have certainty in um, undertaking their contractual obligations. Um, on the other hand, what happens when the parties aren't as clear? Is it the role of the court to err on the side of the creator or err on the other uh, the side of the other party? And um, yeah, this uh, legal system isn't always the justice system and social, philosophical, and other cultural components inevitably uh, find their way into cases. Especially when you're dealing with art, right? So my last question is to that point, um, what's the status of the lawsuit? How do you anticipate it being resolved? Um, and you know, if it does go to trial, what are the potential damages involved? Yeah, so um, trial is set, I believe right now for February of um, 2023. Uh, I do know that um, the parties are discussing or have been discussing settlement. There um, is or was recently a uh, mediation, some settlement conference. So if it doesn't settle, then it's going to fast track the trial. This is uh, in federal court in California and um, very formalized process. And so, um, yeah, we'll have an answer one way or another um, by no later than February, unless it's continued. Joe, uh, favorite, uh, I'm sorry, Neil. I was just saying, in terms of damages, um, it, it, it depends on the claims and, and what discovery reveals. But um, just for context, one of the seven NFTs sold for about $1.1 So that might provide a, a baseline for damages. And just quickly, I mean, the possessor of this NFT, I mean, what rights do they have? Do they literally own you know, the ability to do anything with it? Like, what, what do you own if you buy this NFT? You own the right to access it. So um, it's like a key to unlock secret content, whatever is being um, uh, utilized or, or showcased via the NFT. And um, it, it's, a, it's a question that comes up in many NFT disputes, which is what rights does the creator have? And usually the purchaser has a license. And so it wouldn't detract um, or, or from or strip Tarantino's um, screenplay rights. So he, he potentially would still have the right to commercialize. Um, based on the screenplay. Joe, you know what I'm going to ask you, right? I'm going to ask you your favorite, but before that, I'm going to tell you my favorite. Tarantino is one of my top five directors of all time. I love them all. In descending order, my favorites are Pulp Fiction, number three, Surprise, and number two, Death Proof, which is a very underrated part of the Tarantino filmography, but incredible Kurt Russell performance. And then the OG is my favorite, Reservoir Dogs, you know, uh, number one, always in my heart. Joe, favorite Tarantino film? Uh, you might have stolen it by saying Reservoir Dogs. Uh, mm -hmm. Django Unchained, is that Tarantino? Django's great, of course, yeah, absolutely. Top two, I'll go with those two. Neil, do you have a favorite Tarantino film? Um, just to mix it up, uh, Kill Bill wasn't that bad. That was, that was a fun one. Kill Bill was great. Again, that's Neil Elon of Stubbs, Alderton, and Markley's. Neil, thanks so much for the insight today. Thanks, guys. Welcome back to the Legal Faceoff podcast. Let's move to student loan forgiveness and the conversation of how the Supreme Court could be playing a role. We bring in Lene Erickson, Senior Vice President for Social Policy, Education, and Politics at Third Way. Lene, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Lene, so, uh, on Wednesday, President Biden announced plans to cancel up to $10,000 in federal student loan debt for borrowers making less than $125,000 per year and up to $20,000 for Pell Grant recipients. The Justice Department's Office of Legal Counsel released a memo outlining the justification. The HEROES Act 
was passed in 2003 with bipartisan support and gives the education secretary the authority to waive debt obligations amid a war or national emergency. The law was passed with veterans fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan in mind, but the administration believes now that the coronavirus pandemic provides justification for this law because it was declared a national emergency. You think that that is a shaky legal argument. Please explain why. Yeah, I sure do. You know, I think um, it, it was always a shaky legal argument, but it's an even more shaky legal argument now that we've seen um, the Supreme Court decision in June. So in, in June, the Supreme Court struck down the um, EPA regulations around um, climate change. And they said if, uh, if a decision that an executive makes is of uh, economic and political significance, then it has to have a much stronger basis in congressional authorization. It needs to be very explicit that Congress wanted you to do that thing that you're doing. And I think there's no question that canceling massive amounts of student loans um, is a politically and economically significant act um, and I just don't think it can can reach that bar of having clear congressional authority. Lene, presumably the president anticipated that there were going to be at least some legal challenges to taking this action. How do you think the administration is likely to respond to a legal challenge? Well, you know, they put out a memo um, that did rely on, on the HEROES Act, and it was actually kind of a surprise. I think, you know, all of the um, advocates uh, saying that he did have this authority had been relying on the Higher Education Act's authority in the past. Um, and then they did a quick swap in of a different authority, I think because they realized with this new Supreme Court standard that the Higher Education Act was not going to be sufficiently well tailored to this and, and wouldn't hold up in court. So I think they will make the arguments that they made in the um, Office of Legal Counsel memo, um, but I just don't think they're going to be successful um, because, uh, you know, this isn't really related to COVID. You know, if you if you look particularly, you know, somebody who makes $126,000 a year um, also experienced COVID. <laughs> somebody who uh, never went to college also experienced COVID. Um, and so it's really kind of a tenuous relationship to say that the pandemic that we've now been dealing with for three years um, is directly related to this action. One challenge that might present to potential plaintiffs is proving standing, right? We would have to show that you have some standing, basically some stake in the game in challenging this law. So who do you think could prove that requisite standing? Yeah, I think that's going to be the biggest legal question, but there are a couple of folks that I think uh, will likely be uh, held to have standing. The first is loan servicers. So the loan servicers are losing profits because of these loans being forgiven. So I think that that shows that they have a stake in the game that is um, sufficient to, to get them into court. Um, another could be that person who makes $126,000 a year who isn't benefiting from this. They could say the $125,000 cap is arbitrary because it is. It is literally arbitrary. <laughs> it was made up. Um, and then, you know, even if those kind of folks, um, banks and servicers and um, folks who do not benefit, uh, don't um, uh, successfully prove standing, it is almost certain that the House of Representatives would be able to sue. And so if, as we suspect, uh, the Republicans are going to take back the House, um, they will sue immediately. 
uh, in January and put a stop to this if if it's even still um, you know floating around the courts by that point. Let's assume for the moment that this actually survives the legal challenge. How do you think something like this would get implemented? I think right now we are looking at a dumpster fire of implementation, and uh, you know it's because. Um, we can't do this automatically. Um, you have to have people certify that they qualify. Um, we we know who got a Pell Grant, which is part of what uh, allows you to get up to twenty thousand dollars of relief instead of just ten. Um, but that's in a completely different database than all of the loan information. So if there are forty three million people who are eligible for this, that is going to take a manual override. 43 million times <laughs> over and over and over again to go and um, change their balances. And, uh, you know, the department said they're going to put out the application at the beginning of October and they encourage people to apply quickly. Um, but it is just really hard to see um, how they could process that that number of people in the time frame they laid out. And the, the payment pause that has been in place since the beginning of COVID ends at the end of the year. So that gives them about, you know, two months uh, during the middle of Thanksgiving and Christmas to process 43 million applications. I just don't think that they have the person power to carry that out. I know that at Third Way, uh, you're dealing with issues surrounding higher education reform. Um, I think I saw last night I was watching a program and they talked about uh, in the last three years, the cost of private college has gone up 120 percent. And the tuition at public universities has gone up 200%, which is a shocking number, especially considering that my daughter is now looking at colleges. So (laughs) that's on all of our minds. But, you know, if debt forgiveness, in your opinion, isn't the answer to higher education reform, what is? You know, I think the biggest concern about this decision is it does not fix the problem. It is a band-aid on a gaping wound. And, uh, you know, I'll give you the example. Uh, We have $1.6 trillion in student loans right now. After we carry this out, we're going to be back at $1.6 trillion in five years. Are we going to do this every five years? That's crazy. We need to really fix the root of the problem. So as you mentioned, that's affordability, um, things like uh, expanding the Pell Grants so that people can um, pay for the cost of college. Um, It's also fixing our loan servicing system, which is a complete disaster. And we already have a lot of income-based repayment programs and other forgiveness programs, but they don't work. So, uh, you know, we really need to put some effort into that. But most importantly, it's about um, holding colleges accountable for their outcomes. If a college is leaving their uh, students uh, all the time in unaffordable debt, um, not able to earn enough to pay back their loans, then we shouldn't be paying for them with taxpayer dollars. And I think we really need to stop just thinking about um, federal higher ed policy as a blank check to schools and really be asking the question, are these institutions that are taxpayer funded, are they actually providing us a return on investment? And if not, we should stop sending them those checks. Again, that's Lene Erickson of Third Way, a senior vice president over there. Lene, thank you so much for the time. Thanks for having me. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina 
is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will, and Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. Continuing on the Legal Faceoff podcast, let's get to some recent hockey success. Coming from Deerfield, we bring in 1988 Deerfield High School graduate and recent gold medal winner over Team Canada, Michael Orzoff. He's also a partner at Orzoff Law Offices for the past 16 years. Michael, congratulations. Welcome in. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Really the fame it. of the fame of Michael Orzov continues. Not only are you a, uh, a original, an OG reality star that we'll deal with in a second, but like Joe mentioned, you're a uh, a veteran of international competitive hockey. Tell us more about that part. Mike. Yeah, so I uh, competed in the Maccabi Games, which is the Jewish Olympics. Yes, that's a real thing. Uh, takes place. It's actually the uh, surprisingly the third largest athletic competition in the world behind the, uh, you know, the, the real Olympics and the, uh, I think it's the World University Games or the Pan Am Games. One of those two is ahead of us, but the Maccabiya Games has been going on since 1917, I believe. It's every four years in Israel. And I competed, they have, uh, you know, normal divisions for current athletes. Then they also have something called master's divisions for uh, old men and old women. Uh, I competed in the, uh, in 2013, I competed in the old man 40 and over Hockey, hockey division for Team USA. Uh, we won a gold medal. I like that Joe referred to it as recently. It makes me feel younger than I am, but it was, yeah, it was nine years ago. Won the gold medal over Rich's home country, Canada. And then I I, uh, I went back this year. I'm, I'm too beat up to play anymore, so they kicked me upstairs to management, and I coached the team this year. And unfortunately, we, uh, we came up a little short of our goal. We ended up with silver, losing to Canada in the gold medal game. I'm see, that makes Rich happy. I'm very pleased to hear that, uh, both as an old man as a, and as a Canadian, as a Jew, of course, quite frankly. Um, but, I mean, listen, you're a busy lawyer. I've known you for 20 years. you got a successful law practice. How do you sort of reconcile those both passions? you got some other passions also, but hockey is a major one. How do you sort of balance both of these uh, competing interests? Or maybe they're not competing. Maybe they sort of mesh together pretty well. I mean, the reason I came on here, I was going to ask you for a job. I mean, I, yeah. I might need one after the last year I spent. We're good for now. We're full, but you know, you can, we'll keep you in mind. Um, Thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, yeah, you know, it was tough this year. You know, this it's it was it was quite, it's a passion project for me. And you know, this year it wasn't just about just going to Israel, which which was a time commitment in itself. You know, we're gone for three weeks in the middle of the summer, uh, which is a fantastic trip. But we also. You know, in the last year, we had uh, we had two tryouts in Philly and Boston uh, last summer, and then we picked the team. And then we had training camps in Florida in January. We had another training camp in Florida again in April. And then we had our final training camp in South Bend, Indiana, in uh, June. So it's been a whole. We've been you know running around the country. Uh, you know, our team is all guys from all over the country, and getting everyone together this whole year, getting ready for the the big games in uh, in Israel. So yeah, it's been a, it's definitely been a quite a time commitment, but it's, it's a lot of fun. I'm, I'm looking forward to hopefully doing it again in three years. 
So, Mike, in addition to being a famous lawyer and a famous Olympian and hockey player, you also achieved fame 20 years ago on the reality TV show Love Cruise, which came out in 2001. And it was right around the time of 9-11, actually. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so that was uh, that takes me back a little bit. Yeah, I am one of the original, the OGs of reality TV. It's like me and Richard Hatch, I think. Uh, you know, we, uh, yeah, he was, looks uh, better naked. Let's just say that out loud. I, mean, I don't know if everyone agrees with that, but I'll take it. Um, yeah, it was. I was on a show called Love Cruise. Uh, at the time, I was single. It was uh, sixteen single people. We were on a boat together. We sailed around the Caribbean and we competed in competitions. Every week you'd pair up in a couple, you'd compete with your partner against the other couples. And at the end of each show, all the guys would get to girl, they'd kick it. All the guys would get together. They'd kick a girl off and all the girls would get together. They'd kick a guy off and you just keep doing that. And uh, until we had a winner, it was, uh, it was quite an, ex quite an experience uh, a long time ago, but yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty thrilling. Yeah. So, so you and I met, I mean, no, no joke to you and Joe, I, ran into Orzov one day in court. And this was like 20 years ago, literally. So it would have been, you know, a couple years after uh, the show. And uh, I was an avid, as you know, many of us were back in the day, avid fan of reality TV. And I'm just doing my thing in court, just came out of the courtroom. And I see this Michael Orzov character. I was like awestruck. I'm like, oh my gosh, should I talk to him? Should I ask him to sign something? What should I do? And, uh, you know, quickly, I realized that uh, celebrities are just like us, you know, shockingly. Um, but Orzov, uh, talk to us about the kind of timing of this show. Literally, if I recall, it was released on 9-11, which wasn't the greatest timing, of course. It was, uh, it's pretty crazy. So the and by the way, it was produced by, like, the OGs of, yeah. of reality TV, uh, the Bunim Murray people who, who invented the, uh, the media with, uh, with Real World. Real world, road rules. They've yeah. done some other things since then. Yeah, yeah, it was it was pretty cool to get to work with those guys. Uh, yeah, so it was pretty weird. We, uh, you know, we actually had on September tenth, two thousand one, we had a huge premiere party at Navy Pier because a lot of the cast was from Chicago, coincidentally. So they flew in the rest of the cast. We had these huge party at the, on. It was they showed the first episode on the IMAX big party at Navy Pier. We did interviews with Entertainment Tonight. E weekly, you know, any any organization that was doing news back then, we did an interview with them. And then the next morning, 9-11 happened, which was uh it was pretty crazy. Uh, I remember uh getting a call that morning from one of the girls on the show. She was at the airport and she was trying to leave and she was getting on her plane and she called me. She goes, I don't know what happened, but they just told us all to get off the plane. You know, something happened with a plane in New York or something. So I remember putting on the, you know, the, going downstairs, putting on the TV and seeing at that point, the first plane had already crashed. And I remember making phone calls and calling people. And I was talking to a friend on the phone about it. And of course, you know, at the time I'm only, I was concerned about my TV show. <laughs> I'm like, are we going to be on tonight? And uh, I remember talking to him, like one, but I go, I remember talking, I go, you know, I don't think we're going to be on tonight. And as I said that, the other plane hit. I remember as soon as I said, I go, actually, I don't think we're going to be on for a while. And that was... You know, we were on, I think, I think that they delayed the show for like three weeks after that and finally put it on after that. But that was pretty crazy to, to, you know, try and be in the entertainment industry while that was going on. It was, uh, it was quite a, it was quite a, quite an experience to, you know, be part of that. Part it of was, Tina, it was, it was Orzov, Letterman and SNL who finally 
who finally how we finally learned to laugh again. <laughs> it's, it's true. It's true. Can't argue with that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah. So Mike, what's next for you? I mean, where do you go from here? How many other reality shows are you looking yeah. at? <laughs> I think I I mean they must have lost my number in Hollywood because no one's been calling me to come back. How many other how many other competitions can you lose to both other people and to Canada is the question. That's a it's a good question. I came in second in that one and I came in second in uh the most recent Maccabia game. So uh I don't know. I mean I I think I'm too old and beat up to do Survivor. Uh, I've got a good idea, Tina, uh, Joe, uh, because we're all doing we're, we're doing this in real time. You could all be co-producers. But the new reality show is America's oldest Jewish athlete. We have <laughs> old, old Jewish athletes like Orzov, former athletes competing to see who doesn't break a hip. Yeah, that, that could be that would be the, that would be a short lived series because I don't think you take it more than an episode before everyone broke something. Una Murray comments all I'm saying. That that also just sounds like a couple of the softball leagues not too far away from right. Right. That was our biggest problem this summer in Israel. We had guys dropping like flies with uh, you know pulled groins, pulled hamstrings, you name it. It was uh, it was quite an endeavor to to get our team through just you know seven games in uh, in Israel. The very interesting life of Michael Orzov. We'll be hearing more from him in the legal grab bag. Mike, thanks so much for the time. Thank you. It's time for the Legal Grab Bag here on the Legal Face-Off podcast. Let's get to our two guests and returning guests, along with friends of the podcast. Michael Orzoff, we just chatted with him a little bit earlier, partner at Orzoff Law Offices for 16 years and gold medal winner. Mike, great to see you again. You too. Along with Tony Tate, founder of Corporate Coffee. Find out more about that at corporatecoffee.org. Tony, great to see you as well. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. All right, Rich, let's get to our first topic, a story that we've actually been following along for a little bit now, and it's Vanessa Bryant receiving a big chunk in her lawsuit, but now it looks like she's doing something we were all kind of insinuating, donating it all to charity. Yeah, I mean, L.A. County jury was a long trial. They awarded her initially $16 million. They reduced it to $15 million to match the verdict given to another parent of one of the children who died in that tragic helicopter accident. Um, you know, it was an interesting lawsuit in many ways. Uh, you know, as most of our viewers and listeners know, Vanessa Bryan sued L.A. County because uh, a member of the uh, fire department and a member of the sheriff's department who were first responders on the scene of the helicopter tragedy that took the life of Kobe Bryan and their daughter took pictures um, of their remains and shared it with people that he sh- they shouldn't have been sharing it with, right, in a bar um, during a video game session. And what makes the story really interesting from a legal perspective is that uh, these pictures were not really widely disseminated. Uh, Vanessa Bryan herself, as the lead plaintiff, didn't even ever see them. But what she was arguing, what she ultimately, Tina, successfully convinced the jury of, was that she suffers, she suffered and will potentially suffer in the future damages as a result of these pictures being possibly out there. Now, there was testimony that they were wiped, right? But the essence of this award is that you never really know if they're out there. And again, what's really interesting when you drill deep down in this case is the fact that she has to live with the idea that these photos were taken and could be out there 
is worth $15 million in damages. Um, that's a kind of uh, a unique, and there, you know, there's some unique laws involved in this case, but you know, that is a relatively high award for someone who's actually never seen the photos and that is not out there in the public domain. And by the way, one of the important reasons for the amount of the lawsuit is because, listen, legally or not, and, and, and whether you believe that, you know, it's worth ultimately $30 million, we heard gut-wrenching testimony from Vanessa Bryan about how she had to be aware that literally the remains of her loved ones were subject to not only, uh, you know, iPhone pictures, but being shared. So, you know, at the end of the day, juries um, sometimes don't follow the law exactly and are swayed by compelling stories like this one. Yeah, I mean, I think at the end of the day, um, I, I think it's the right decision. Um, you know, it reminds me of cases of, you know, right of publicity, right to privacy, which are issues that I deal with, you know, somewhat frequently in my practice. Um, but also, you know, things have changed in the advent of the Internet and social media. And I think that the that the game has changed a bit when it comes to these sorts of analyses because of the fact that these things can be shared so much more easily than they could be a few years ago. So um, I thought it was an interesting legal theory. Um, I agree with the decision personally. I think it was a horrible tragedy. And the fact that these pictures were taken with this uncertainty as to how much they'd been disseminated, copied, et cetera, they were not taken for a proper purpose. And so I think that the decision was correct. Funny, when we look at damages, we always examine them from a couple different filters, compensatory, punitive. There's no question that the compensatory damages portion of this from the jury's perspective was relatively small. What was a big uh, motivating factor, presumably, was punitive, right? And you can understand that. Uh, there's no one, I think, on this planet who could argue that what the police did in this case was right. You know, there's certainly a reason to take pictures. But what we learned from this case is that police, not only in this jurisdiction in L.A. County, but in other uh, departments have what, what they call death books, which is literally books that they keep of, uh, uh, of death scenes and human remains, and they disseminate it to each other, which is just shocks the conscience. So you're not surprised that a jury would be repulsed by that and award a significant amount just to punish this behavior and dissuade others from doing it in the future. Definitely. Um, when I was looking at this case, there were a few numbers that were kicked around. I saw a 75 million. Um, she asked for 75. Yeah, 75, and, and, and I saw the 16, and I think we are all in agreement here. What happened was just horrific, um, but I think it goes into um, a broader idea of society, of the spectacle, you know, and, um, you know, the, the, the classic case of tragedy that happens and people wanting to capture these things, you know, and, and, and disseminate them, or, and, and who knows, you know, what these people were thinking, you know, if, if this case hadn't been filed, you know, these pictures may have shown up and, and, and the people may have gotten some type of profit for it. So it was just uh, it was just a hard case all around. I was reading some of the comments from the the, the, the defense attorney, you know, um, the L.A. County, and it just it came off very, um, very harsh, you know, in this type of case that is so um, emotional. And, and so, yeah, I, I agree. I think there's no it would be hard to determine an amount for this, you know, in my opinion, but. Michael, as someone who asked juries and other trials of fact to award damages to your clients, you understand the dynamics at play here and the, um, 
you know, ability to use emotions to sway a jury, in this case, relatively easy task because of, you know, uh, what's involved here, you know, a widow and a mother testifying about others seeing and exhibiting the remains of her, her loved ones. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've never seen the photos either. Can I get a million? You know, maybe, uh, probably not for you. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was, uh, obviously it's quite a tragedy, you know, like you, Rich, I'm a huge basketball fan and big Kobe Bryant fan. So this was, a. Uh, it was pretty terrible that this happened. Um, it's quite, I, it's hard to justify the amount of money, but uh, I can't, I can see where a jury would be. This would be a very inflammatory topic and I can see where it'd be pretty easy to get pretty riled up to, to give a lot of money on this. And uh, I think it's uh yeah. So uh, we don't see these types of awards in our cases, rich in our, in our workers comp cases, but uh, you know, it's, it's quite uh, it's quite an impressive amount. Uh, the original number was extremely high. Even 16 million seems very high for this, but uh, who are we to put a price tag on something like that? Our next topic, Tina, we never hear about the fourth amended amendment these days. It's always about the first or the second, but now apparently a judge has ruled a college student or rather a college violated a student's forthright amendment. Yeah, Joe. So last week, a U.S. district judge in the Northern District of Ohio ruled that Cleveland State University violated the Fourth Amendment when a proctor for one of the exams ordered a scan of a student's bedroom. It was a remote chemistry exam. The student's name is Aaron Ogletree, and he was requested to perform the room scan back in February of 2021. He happened to object before the scan was done because he had tax documents in his bedroom that he didn't want others to see. The scan lasted for less than a minute. Um, it was recorded, and apparently other students taking the test were also able to see the room scans. So the scan was found to violate the Fourth Amendment, which many of our listeners may know protects against unreasonable searches and seizures. The school had argued that the student's expectation for privacy in this circumstance was unreasonable. Um, and the law that it relied on were some U.S. Supreme Court cases involving warrantless aerial searches that discovered marijuana plants that were being grown. The judge in this case distinguished this situation from those cases on the basis that um, this was inside somebody's residence and actually in somebody's bedroom, which is very different from aerial searches for looking for plants out in the open. Um, he said room scans go where people otherwise would not, at least not without a warrant or an invitation. So at this stage, the lawyers for both sides have been directed by the judge to confer on appropriate next steps. Rich, as Joe mentioned, we don't see these kinds of cases too often. Um, I thought that this was a pretty interesting one, given yeah. that it's a byproduct of, of COVID primarily. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting case uh, you don't see dealt with too often. I mean, I have a couple of takeaways. Number one, tax documents, really? That's what the students <laughs> do? No, I agree. No way. There's a lot more in that room that he was uh, worried about. Uh, we wouldn't be here discussing this if it was tax documents, number one. Number two, I mean, listen, it's Cleveland State University. It's a public university. Um, I think you might be more sympathetic to his fourth amendment argument if it was a private university. 
Does that change the analysis of whether he has an expectation of privacy in his own room? Probably not. But I think if you know, you're dealing with, I think it's a little weaker argument being that's a state university. And again, the other thing is the, the issue here in any Fourth Amendment search and seizure case is two competing um, uh, needs, right? You need the state's need to investigate potential crimes and the difficulty doing so when you've got a private citizen uh, competing with the right to privacy and the right to not have the government, you know, pound down your door and, and search your home or your dorm room. Um, so, you know, I understand the, uh, you know, uh, analogy that your dorm room is no different from your home and the same rights apply. But, you know, I don't think it's exactly on, uh, on point. But, uh, Mike, what are your thoughts on this? I thought this was just about the dumbest thing I've seen today. <laughs> I mean, I mean, here's a tip to the kid. Clean your room. <laughs> you're taking an exam. I have every I totally understand why a professor would want to make sure you're not cheating and scan the room. Clean your room. I mean, you're that concerned about you're, you're 20 years old. What's in the tax documents? You're worried that someone's going to see the, the 10 grand you made waiting tables at Applebee's. I mean, who cares? This is. I mean, a Tony, yeah, Tony, Michael's right. You know, actually, you know, during COVID, I mean, cheating was rampant, like literally kids were cheating nonstop because they were home. And I think Michael's right. You know, the state and the professor and the university have an interest in making sure that the student wasn't cheating. Agreed. And um, in looking at this case, too, I, I read somewhere that there was actually a statement, I believe, in the syllabus that that stated, you know, that the test would be conducted via proxy this way. And I think that statement was removed, you know, by the professor. But um, this student did what they were notified in advance. And so to me, I guess when you I'm, the word that stands out to me here is consent. And at the time that, you know, he was notified via email. Hey, we're going to do this. He emailed back. I, you know, I have all this stuff strewed around that I don't want anyone to see. I think there was some medical, some um, um, prescriptions that were there as well. Um, and at the time it started and he was asked, I, you know, if, if it was that real to me, I would have still protested and said, hey, you know, did you get my email? I'm not going to do this. So I think it comes down to an issue of consent and, and him actually performing that, that scan. But then to later come back and claim privacy, like I said, the math ain't mathing on this one for me. Hey, listen, if we could see the uh, dirty stained carpet of Mar-a-Lago and there's no right to privacy there, then I think we could see the inside of this Cleveland State dorm room. It, it, well, he's right in email. He couldn't have taken that time to shove everything under his bed. <laughs> exactly. I, I don't want to see I, I wouldn't want to see an image of the Orzov dorm room circa 1978 or whatever. <laughs> Believe me, I don't think I filed a tax return back then. I sure as hell didn't have a job. Statue of limitations is wrong. You're good. <laughs> And I mean, these, these types of things were extremely common. I mean, even prior to COVID, because, you know, prior to COVID, I was working on a degree and, and the same thing happened. They, you know, we're just trying to make sure that, you know, this is offered remotely. You know, we just want to make sure that that things are going that, you know, are copacetic and, and nothing, you know, nefarious is going on. And, and it was something that I knew coming in that it was going to happen. Um, you know, uh, in a way, I consented. I agree. So. I remember when I was in college and everyone knows what a beer bong is, right? Well, yeah. there, there was a college student that had an octabong, which had eight different, you know, funnels and portions. And he got caught with it in a storm and he wrote an entire letter 
falsifying it as a filter for his fish tank. <laughs> and the university bought it. And they, they, they replied with the, an apology letter. I, it, I'm sure if you just do a quick Google search, you'll find it. Um, but yeah, a little, little bit more quick-witted there. Um, I'll tell you what else stands out to me, though, is that this happened in Ohio. And when you look at Ohio, you have a lot of Fourth Amendment related cases like you have Matt versus Ohio. You have Terry versus Ohio. So I'm like, what is going on with Ohio and this Fourth Amendment? Like this is this is wild. <laughs> Rich, why doesn't this show have an octobong? I was going to say, the big takeaway brought to you by octobong. <laughs> we, we still need, we, we need COVID, COVID friendly. Exactly. We, we still need three more people before we can perform at the Octobong. Richest um, rich Canadian, he could do three parts by himself. Throw some Molson in there. That's right. On to the next topic, which actually reminds me of another story. I do remember one time police located a criminal because he was bragging about creating a crime on Facebook. This is somewhat of a similar situation, Tina, but this time it involves rappers wrapping their way into, well, can we call it a confession? Yeah, so there are a number of lessons to be learned from a story like the one we're about to talk about, including um, using good judgment in what you post to social media, as well as what you include in song lyrics that you happen to write. This case is another one that demonstrates that when it comes to social media and what you post, sometimes less is more. So earlier this week, Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis announced a 220-page indictment targeting 26 members of a street gang named Drug Rich that had been targeting the Atlanta area homes of famous athletes, entertainers, and social media influencers who flaunt expensive possessions on social media. The allegations include violations of Georgia's anti-gang and racketeering laws and apparently is a product of various law enforcement agencies working together. Among the famous folks that are mentioned are Mariah Carey and Marlo Hampton of the Real Housewives of Atlanta, as well as Atlanta Falcons football player Calvin Ridley. Um, apparently, the crimes include homes being broken into, allegations of carjacking, kidnapping, armed robbery, burglary, shootings, and other kinds of home invasions. And the common thread here appears to be that those who are targeted flaunt their wealth on social media through various posts, which the DA has said is just not a good idea because gangs are becoming smarter and more sophisticated in the way that they target their victims. But apparently they're not particularly smart when it comes to talking about the crimes that they're committing or about to commit, which the DA has said and has delivered a strong message to, to those rappers among the gang um, who are doing that. Um, she said to them, quote, you don't get to commit crimes in my county and then decide to brag on it which you do that for a form of intimidation and to further the gang and not be held responsible. I have some legal advice. Don't confess to crimes and rap lyrics if you don't want them used or at least get out of my county. So, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens with this, Rich, but um, definitely another really interesting story that touches on issues that we've talked about on the podcast, you know, a number of times before. I mean, a product of our times, right? Using anything you can uh, to prove your case, including social media, including videos. I mean, you know, if someone is confessing to a crime, 
listen to them. We, we've had lots of different examples of this. I mean, in the Astroworld case, uh, there are lots of examples of songs in advance of that in which, uh, you know, the, 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 the hip hop star in that case is talking about that very situation. We've had lots of examples of that. Um, listen, there's only so much you can rap about at some point. Uh, at some point, you're actually going to be set talking about what is going on in your life. And uh, it might very well be, um, be convincing to a jury that uh, this crime was allegedly confessed to in this rap. Tony? Well, I think the term here is allegedly. Um, and I, I don't know. Let me start off by saying I kind of thought of in the beginning when you were talking about this, you know, like Robin Hood, you know, who stole from the rich and gave to the poor. That, that's not what's happening here. But um, <laughs> when you look at <laughs> Are you sure about that? What, what did they do with the right. Harry stuff? Did they give it away or did they keep it? Well, if they kept it for their own pockets, that wasn't giving it to the poor unless they considered themselves poor. But that's a different story. Um, but no, I, I think that what we look at is, is I can come out with a rap tomorrow that, you know, where I say, you know, I've, I've done these things or I've seen these things to try to give myself some type of, you know, street cred or rap cred, but is it really true? Um, I, and, and that's kind of where I'm now, now here, I do want to caveat this by saying if, because the word alleged is here, if the crimes were truly committed by these individuals and they're rapping about it, I say, yes, Miss prosecutor, throw the book at them. But I think there needs to be a little bit more of investigation going on here, because if you think about, um, Sometimes rap and rap culture, there can be this kind of persona that you need to build to make yourself seem like you're tough to go along with, you know, the, this this image. So I, I just that's where I am with that. I, I don't know. It's alleged right now. But if it is right, then I'm totally on her side. Or if you're a well-known rap star among your many other talents, uh, have you ever admitted to any kind of crime in, in a lyric? Nothing where the statue is not expired. OK. Um, so, yeah, I have not su not surprisingly, I have a slightly different perspective on this one. I uh, I read this and they're they're kind of like saying, look at these dumb rappers. I say, look at this. Look at this dumb Fulton D.A. Fannie Willis. Like she's got these rappers confessing to crimes. And what does she do? She turns on. Hey, hey, stop doing that. Stop confessing to crimes in your rap songs. Please make my job harder for me. Why is she even saying this? She should just be buying more rap albums and prosecuting more criminals. Interesting perspective. I'll play. And by the way, good reference to good reference to buying rap albums. 1997 called and they want their reference back. I'm assuming that Fanny's sitting there got a nice vinyl collection. Yeah. Uh, for rap sure. albums. Current rap albums. Yeah. She's buying that, Cool Mo D and uh, DJ Jazzy Jeff. Rich, Rocky is still fighting after all these years, but uh, this time Sylvester Stallone not going against Apollo Creed. It's ex-wife for the couple's dogs. Joe, prepare yourself for the inevitable question I'm going to ask. I'm just giving you a heads up about the question I may or may not ask in a few seconds. But um, yeah, it's a, very, it's a real cliffhanger of a case about a Rocky relationship dealing with who drew first blood. You see what I did there? That took me, that took I like me a while. It. I like yeah. it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, so... Stallone, uh, let's see, we got to hear the, hear the story. So Stallone married Jennifer Flavin, what, like 25, 30 years ago. They had a long relationship in Hollywood that's considered a lifetime. They had three kids. I think they're doing a Stallone uh, 
uh, reality show with her daughter. It's very attractive young lady. It's all very successful. And um, all was going well. You know, Stallone's got a new movie out, I think, on, on Amazon Prime called The Samaritan. It looks pretty good. Um, all was going well until like a week or so ago, he showed up at, at a premiere and, uh, you know, he's not shy about showing his physique. And he was showing one of his tattoos. Some press noticed that instead of the picture of Jennifer Flavin, his wife, it was a picture of a dog, Butkus, who famously was named after the Rocky II Butkus from, from that movie. And, uh, you know, that led to some speculation. Well, sure enough, a few days later, they filed for divorce. Jennifer Flavin uh, alleged irreconcilable differences. Uh, so, you know, one lesson is if your significant other comes back with a tattoo that used to be you and is now a dog, you might want to call your lawyer. That might be a sign that all is not going great. Uh, they went to the trouble of covering up. Now, Stallone, as the time said, oh, no, this wasn't to cover up Jennifer's uh, face. It was some other reason he gave. But, you know, uh, I think that's a pretty good preview of things are going really rough in your marriage, Tina. Yeah, no. So it's interesting. What was unclear to me was whether he did that. I mean, he I read this and thought he must have done that with the tattoo, knowing that the marriage was over and it was just a a, a, a process of going public with it. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's never a good situation when you've got the press out there and people in the public seeing you with this suddenly, you know, very altered uh, tattoo that was very prominent going from, you know, your spouse to a deceased pet. That's never a, a good thing. And I think from a media uh, controlling standpoint, I'm not sure that that was their finest moment either. But um, it seems like uh, this is definitely going towards divorce and is not reconcilable based on some of the social media I've seen Jennifer Flavin put out. So, well, Orzov, it wasn't just the dog tattoo was the issue, but allegedly uh, Jennifer Flavin did not want Stallone to get a new Rottweiler, and that led to these irreconcilable differences. Stallone, through his publicist, said that they would not break up over such a trivial argument. They just went in different directions. But listen, you're famously a dog guy. I mean, I can't you know. I've got my, uh, yeah, there you go. These are, my, these are my two puppies. Yeah, and Benedict. There'll be two in a month. Yeah, I mean, Orzov posts more dog photos than anyone I know. So I I think you understand the story better than anyone. Look, I mean, there's no there's no doubt whose side I'm on in this one. Uh, You know, uh, his ex better hope that she doesn't. You know, she'd be better off getting Judge Dredd as a judge in the divorce Ah, case. There you go, helping you out there. yeah, yeah, as a proud dog owner of two puppies, yeah, and hundred percent, he had me at. She said I couldn't get another dog. You know, I don't care what else she says. I don't care what he did. I'm on his side in this one. She's hor- She's a horrible person for not letting me get a Rottweiler. You know, ironically, this week I had a. You know, we all as lawyers get the most random questions from people. You know, you think that lawyers who do any particular area of law intellectual property, what we do that, you know, everything there is about it. I got a, a text the other day asking for someone to help out getting their dog back because their ex had taken the dog. And I actually took a deep dive into Illinois law and there's actually a law dealing with, you know, that situation uh, alone. Um, I say that with the idea that people, Tony, are very passionate about their dogs as they should be. 
They're like family. So you understand how, even though they denied it, that a relationship could break up over a dog and even a dog tattoo, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, um, I guess it makes sense to them. It, it, it doesn't make any sense to me, but <laughs> I'm going to stand on the opposite side of Michael on this one. But um, the story, actually, when I was reading it, it said that he originally wanted to touch up the tattoo of the wife, but it was botched. And therefore, he had, you know, the, the dog then tattooed on, on his arm. So there was, there's, there's a question there. about. Well, I agree. That can be dangerous to imagine telling your wife that, you know, your image on me doesn't look like it used to be. I'm going to touch it up. Right, right. That doesn't make sense to me. And, and, and my, my mind went to thinking, OK, time frame, if you were trying to get this updated, but then it was botched. So then you turn around and go right again to get the dog on. No, sir. I'm sorry. Your story doesn't add up here. Um, (laughs) These These are Hollywood couples. I'm sure she's probably had work done on her actual face. So what's the big deal if he wants to touch up the tattoo as well? Yeah. All right. Well, the good news for them is California is a no fault divorce state, so right. <laughs> it doesn't have to cite anything uh, specific to uh, for this divorce to to go through. But best of luck to them, and I hope he gets the dog in the end. All right, quickly, as promised, around the horn, your favorite Stallone movie. Um, I'll start because I it's like a, it's a real Sophie's choice for me. You know, I, I love Stallone, have forever. Uh, for me, it's between. First Blood, you know, the OG Rambo and Cobra. I'm going to side a little bit with Cobra because you can't get a better, you know, use of your 97 minutes than than seeing Stallone be the cure and crime is the disease. But Tony, do you have a favorite uh, Stallone movie? You guys been making movies for like 45 years. Yeah, well, I don't know if he was like the star feature in this movie, but I like him in his appearance in Creed. Um, Incredible. Yeah, like, uh, that's the best. And actually, they're doing Creed three, believe it or not. Oh wow! Um, almost run out of second generation fighters, but now uh, uh, Adonis Creed is going to be fighting Clubber Langs, as played by mm-hmm. Mr. T's kid. I'm not sure if T is going to be in the film, but yeah, I'm all in on every Creed. It's the greatest. Mm-hmm. Uh, Joe Brand, favorite Stallone. I'll go with Serpico. I'm going to ask you again: favorite Stallone. Not Al Pacino. I know, right? Oh my God, you just totally. Yet all this time, I gave you the preview. I gave you like eight minutes to uh, <laughs> Google Stallone, and you come up with an Al Pacino movie. Ah, <laughs> uh, the other old Italian guy, Joe. Somebody, somebody once told me that my facial hair reminded them of uh, Serpico, and I don't know why I thought it was you just. And you and you continue to go with Serpico, uh, even though you know it's wrong. All right, let's go, Tina. That was the worst. I'm going to go with Rocky. I still love Rocky. All right. Uh, or is that go with something? Please go with something. I got, I got something different. I thought yeah. he was fantastic as the voice of King Shark in Suicide Squad. Wow, there you go. That's a, a deep dive that no one, even Stallone, doesn't remember that, by the way. It's from 2021. I thought you were going to say, like, stop or my mom would shoot or rhinestone, maybe. You know, one of those. I think you're, I think you're being a little over the top now, Rich. Right, Joe, <laughs> Joe, we're going to give you one last chance. We'll edit out that other colossal failure of an answer. He's going to say Mean Streets now All with right. De Niro. <laughs> Three, two, one. Let's go to Joe Brand. Joe, favorite Stallone movie? Uh, I'll go with the original. Said, wait, if you say Scarface, I'm literally... <laughs> <laughs> I'll go with the original. I'll go with Creed, the original Creed. Oh, there you and, go. Tony. and Ben, don't, don't edit out Serpico. Leave it in there. I, I, want, I want that count. <laughs> 
Well, let's uh, and Stallone hears this, and it, you know he listens to all our podcasts. He's going to be pissed. Let's move from dogs to the monkeys, and here we are, Tina, in 2022, digging up some old dirt from the 1960s band from the FBI. No, you got you got us back. You had you lost us. You got us back with that segue from dogs to monkeys. <laughs> Very good, excellent. So, yes, for those of you in our audience who don't know who the monkeys are because you're too young. They're a famous 60s rock band. Not you, Orzov, by the way. She's not talking about you. (laughs) (laughs) And like many celebrities and musicians who were in their heyday during the 1960s, they have an FBI file. And the sole surviving member of the band, Mickey Dolenz, is trying to get his hands on it and has filed a lawsuit against the FBI. Back in June, he had filed a Freedom of Information Act request but the FBI failed to respond within the 20-day period, and so now he's suing to get the file. So apparently a small portion of the band's FBI file was released to the public about 11 years ago, um, and Mickey Dolenz wants to see the entire thing, not just about the band, but about himself as well as his former bandmates, Davy Jones, Mike Nesmith, and Peter Tork. Dolan's attorney, interestingly, is Mark Said, who is not only an expert in FOIA requests, apparently, but he was also part of the legal team that represented the government whistleblower in the 2019 Donald Trump Ukraine scandal. And of course, Mark Zaid is a huge Monkees fan. So you might be asking yourself, why would the FBI have files on the Monkees? Well, apparently the Monkees, as pure as they may seem to many of us today, were part of the country's counterculture back in the 60s um, because they were against the Vietnam War and hung out with people like John Lennon and Jimi Hendrix. Um, According to some of the publicly available documents, there were allegedly subliminal messages that were depicted on a screen during some of their shows. And there was an FBI informant who was apparently in the audience and tipped off the FBI. Apparently there were anti-US messages on the war in Vietnam, about the racial riots in Alabama and other messages. And that's what uh, got the FBI on their case. Apparently, some people think that the lyrics for Last Train to Clarksville also have anti-war sentiments. And remember that the FBI at the time was back under J. Edgar Hoover's leadership. And so he was very closely monitoring um, everything counterculture. So it's going to be interesting to see, Rich, what um, these FBI files reveal. Um, There's really no way to predict. It could be pretty innocuous stuff like identifying information about the informant. It could be information that's completely unrelated to the band. So it's kind of hard to tell whether this is going to be sort of like another Al Capone vault situation where you open it up and there's a whole lot of nothing there. Bunch of yellow leftist, commie-loving Sixers hipsies, those monkeys. (laughs) Those monkeys were, come on, they were, they were trying to infiltrate American culture with all those leftist uh, thugs. I mean, little known fact, uh, Tina, last, change, last train to Clarksville, original title, last train to Vladivostok. Um, uh, I'm a Believer actually was a song about the Communist Party, that they believe in communism. I'm kidding with all that, I hope. But anyway. Um, <laughs> was yeah, that uh, written by, uh, by, uh, by, by, uh, by Lenin, the other Lenin, you know, the real Lenin. That's what they it was, were. What's his name? Neil Diamond. Neil Diamond wrote it, right? Uh, no, the monkeys wrote it for Neil Diamond, or vice versa. No, I think I think Neil Diamond wrote. I'm a believer. Neil Diamond wrote it for. So we should blame him for everything that goes wrong, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, complete waste of time. Uh, this this lawsuit. I mean, 
you know, as you mentioned, there's one last surviving member, uh, Mickey Dolenz. I mean, I get it, you know, but it was a, it was a different era. It was J. Edgar Hoover. It was the Red Scare. It was, you know, communism was infiltrating, coming as close as Cuba. So, you know, maybe not the best use of government resources, Tony, back in the day, but what's really the point at this point? You know, we all know about statute limitations. We all know about damages. We just talked about what the damages are. What are the damages that Mickey Dolan will be able to prove? Nothing. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you on this one. Um, I, I was a fan of the monkeys in, in its revival on Nickelodeon. So for those that are a little bit younger <laughs> that don't remember the actual monkeys when they were out, it did resurface back uh back in the 80s and on Nickelodeon. But yeah, I, I remember reading this and 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 just thinking what like why to what end? You know, um the thing about um the, the files and the FBI files, you know, nothing can be held forever. So eventually, you know, it may not be in the in Mickey's lifetime, you know, but eventually these 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 documents will be released. But I really think there's nothing to see here because if there was really something of significance, something under J. Edgar Hoover would have been done at that time. I mean, so that's yeah, I, I really don't this uh, this is all to do about nothing, in my opinion. I say just give him the documents. The guys, he's old. His friends are all dead. He's bored. Give him, he needs something. He wants to read the documents. What's the big deal? Give him his documents. The one sentence that's in there, that's really what he's fighting for. <laughs> uh, listen, the FBI are busy with other lawsuits at the moment, so let's give him a break. <laughs> The monkeys also resurfaced in the 90s, Tony, when uh, Nick at Night would play the Brady Bunch and Davy Jones visited the Brady Bunch. So I remember that as well. They have survived many decades. Yes. Yes. Timeless. And actually, it was uh, Smash Mouth that wrote the song, I'm a Believer. So you're right. (laughs) Great version by Shrek. Uh, Man, talk about it. Talk about a heavyweight matchup. Kim Kardashian against Hillary Clinton. And the results might surprise you, Rich. So Hillary Clinton, as we know, is a lawyer by trade, a law professor, um, the first lady of the United States, uh, former secretary of state, former senator, knows a lot about this thing we call the law. Um, on the other side of this legal battle, we've got, um, let's see, Kim K, uh, known for other things, uh, not so much the law, although to the point of the story, she's become quite the uh, uh, legal expert. She took the baby bar, took and passed the baby bar in California. Uh, which means she took several hours of an exam and was the equivalent of passing the first year of law school. So Kim K, uh, we also know her from uh, working to exonerate many wrongly convicted uh, offenders, been quite successful in that. She squared off against uh, the former Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton, in a legal battle. And uh, believe it or not, much to the dismay of many uh, betters, she beats Hillary Clinton. Not it wasn't even close, Tina. It was eleven to four. Uh, questions like, you know, um, uh, what does uh, illegal search and seizure mean? I mean, some pretty hard questions, and she killed it. Now, Hillary and her daughter, who hosted the show, came out later and said, "Well, this was mostly due to a uh, a buzzer issue." You know, Hillary opponents might liken this to her excuses for losing. The election. She blamed this one on poor reflex skills and Kim K being younger and faster. Let's face it, we're all living in Kim K's legal world, Tina. She killed it. Well, you know, it's interesting. A couple of observations. I think that Hillary 
also said something about that she really wanted to make this about Kim K and helping promote her. So again, you know, is that some sort of a backhanded compliment of, you know, Kim K's legal prowess? But also, I mean, we all know that you know a lot of these things pretty quickly, you know, and you're able to react pretty quickly with the right answer after you've graduated from law school and especially when you've studied pretty hard as she has for the bar exam. So, and, you know, there's certain things that you just forget over time. So I'm not making excuses for Hillary or anything, but I could kind of see how this excuses. Arms uh, off. You got, you're in jail. You got one porter. You got the payphone. You're calling your lawyer. You're calling Kim K or Hill. Well, I mean, the part about this story, which I find I'm just fascinated by is this baby part. I've never, I never heard of a baby bar. That wasn't a thing when we were in law school. And I love that it, it took Kim K three tries to pass the baby bar. How many attempts at the baby bar do you get? When have, Has anyone here taken the baby bar? I think it's only a California no. thing, maybe. That's a thing? It's a California thing. Anything goes in California. And you can just take it as many times as you want. Just take the baby bar. I'm not surprised she beat Hillary, though. I mean... You know, as, as we all know, you know, and someone in law school is probably going to do better on a law school exam than someone that's actually been practicing law for 20 years. Not that Hillary's been practicing law. Well, that's she that. actually, if you look at the video, uh, she's wearing, Kim K's even wearing gloves, which I don't know if was it a, was a, a help or a disadvantage, but she's, you know, with these long black gloves that she's using to hit that buzzer. Yeah, and that's it. I'm not really going to find any excuses that Hillary makes because I've just programmed to not believe a word that comes out of her mouth. So you're not, you're not calling Hillary from jail. No, 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 thanks. It's like the show. Are you smarter than a fifth grader? Like, yes, of course, everyone is smarter than the fifth grader. But because the fifth grader is recently learning all of these things, it's fresh in their mind. The word chloroform, chlorophyll comes quicker to their mind than it would somebody else who hasn't looked at a. I think, uh, I think Joe just stumbled on our new show we're going to produce. Are you smarter than Hillary Clinton? <laughs> We'd be giving away a lot of prizes on that one. Or Joe Brand, comma, who did you chloroform recently? That's a whole other podcast. Uh, well, just don't quiz me on any more Sylvester Stallone movies, please. Uh, <laughs> Still haven't come up with one. <laughs> <laughs> but my, the good news is you ace the Pacino movie yeah. quiz. Yeah, I, I can't wait for that. I, 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 got a, I got a good one waiting for it whenever you come up with that quiz. So uh, Richard, losing dog day afternoon, Carlito's away, Glenn <laughs> Gary, Glenn Ross. Joe's got the whole the whole repertoire. Uh, apparently, not anyone can just claim themselves as the queen of Christmas because a very likely candidate attempted it and received a lot of pushback. Yeah, Mariah. Um, Mariah attempted to register the term queen of Christmas as a trademark. Now. Apparently, there's many others who are trying to call themselves the Queen of Christmas. There's a uh, singer who literally released an album called The Queen of Christmas, Elizabeth Chan, who's a very well-known Christmas expert, a singer who releases lots of Christmas albums. Also, Darlene Love uh, has been singing about Christmas since the 60s. Uh, She was also dubbed the Queen of Christmas by none other than David Letterman has been playing um, no one wants to be nobody wants to be alone on Christmas on Letterman's show or had been playing it for years and years. So there's a dispute about all three female singers about who should get the moniker Queen of Christmas. We're going to turn to Tina as our intellectual property lawyer in a second on this and talk about some of the 
implications of registering a trademark and how monetarily that actually means a lot. But interesting thing is like speaking about listening to people dig their own graves lyrically, Mariah Carey gave an interview where she said, I don't want to be known as the queen of Christmas. Right. Um, and, you know, as a, we, we, it's a very Jewish episode today, by the way, I'm a Jewish person. <laughs> I don't celebrate Christmas, but isn't the real queen of Christmas someone named, I don't know, Mary, isn't that the real queen of Christmas? Isn't that someone that should be called queen of Christmas? Can Tina, you protect Christmas? I mean, that seems like a, a term that's so secular and so popular that you shouldn't be able to claim it. That's what Chan says. So we don't have a ton of time, lots of many interesting legal issues, but will she be successful in trademarking the term queen of Christmas? It should be. Well, you know, that's a great question. I mean, so just a couple of things. I mean, trademarks really are um, meant to protect the public. Um, you know, we have brand owners that we talk about who spend lots of money, you know, to try to stop competition and people from adopting names that are confusingly similar or the same. But at the end of the day, trademark law is really about protecting the public. And so when I say that, what I mean is they can't be deceptive. Um, you give people who think that they're having their rights being infringed the opportunity to object. We know that Mariah Carey is trying to register Queen of Christmas for a whole host of things. And at the end of the day, the question is, do people see this phrase as signifying a single source? And I think that is really um, a, a tough thing to say yes to. Um, and it doesn't help Mariah Carey. At the end of the day, when you file a trademark application, you've got to sign a declaration under penalty of perjury that you are the owner of this mark and you're not aware of anybody else's rights that could somehow beat yours um, and would not entitle you to a registration. So my guess is at the end of the day, she's probably going to either abandon these applications or work out some sort of a licensing arrangement where people are able to um, peacefully coexist, as we like to say, in, in the trademark world. Because there's also the optics of this from a PR perspective to be fighting over who gets to be the queen of Christmas. I mean, that just doesn't look good. So that's my trademarks 101 for today, Rich. Tony, uh, Mariah Carey has sold like, I don't know, millions, billions of uh, her song, All I Want for Christmas is You. It's arguably the most popular Christmas song, at least in the last 50 years, right? Um, her attorney, like Chan's attorney has said, this is, classic trademark bullying part of this story is can you afford to litigate this issue regardless of who's right as tina knows these are incredibly expensive cases to litigate and ultimately mariah carey has way deeper pockets than at least uh, elizabeth champ yeah i mean i think we're dealing with in my opinion respectability politics here and um you know if we look at pecking order I mean, Miss Love is on the top. You know, she's been the the, the longest one. And, and Mariah is kind of one of the newest kids on the block, um, even though, yeah, as you mentioned, you know, she does have the deep pockets, you know, to, to litigate this. I think of other kind of monikers when we talk about trademarks and, and to Tina's point, it's, it's that unique identifier. And when I think of Queen of Christmas, I don't automatically think, you know, Mariah Carey. I think of other uh, artists, you know, who have these, 
these terms, these monikers, you know, Michael Jackson had the king of pop, you know, and I never saw that, you know, trying to be capitalized on, you know, other artists have different, you know, king of this, queen of that, you know, James Brown was the godfather of soul and he never, you know, tried to pursue things to go after that. So at the end of the day, um, does Mariah have the pockets to fight it? Yes. But, you know, will she risk or maybe she doesn't care, you know, about uh, just respecting others and, and not trying to, to, to corner the market on, the, on this term as a unique identifier for her. I think it also just kind of puts her in a box. If you think of her expansive career, you know, if I were her, I wouldn't want to be put in a box to think of, be thought of as queen of Christmas. I think there are other terms that she could, or unique identifiers that she could try to trademark and, and kind of leave this one alone. But it's interesting. We'll see how it plays out. Orzov is a fellow uh, Jewish uh, lawyer. Uh, you know the importance of branding. I agree. And inspired by the story, uh, I've decided to trademark uh, a similar term, not Queen of Christmas, but King of Hanukkah. I am now, uh, I'm going to be known forevermore as, I want to be known as the King of Hanukkah. I put a little, Tina, you and I are going to work on this later, but uh, the problem is I couldn't quite spell Hanukkah. <laughs> <laughs> so I came up with, Several different versions, yeah, but so, um, I'd like you to all support my application, please, as the king of, I'm going to make a crown out of it, as Michael talks to the, yeah, I am so, the king of Hanukkah. So I'm, I'm with Mariah on this one. I think that, uh, I think that we're all coming down a little too hard on Mariah on this one. I mean, she needs a win. You know, this, she just had her fourth amendment rights trampled by all these rappers in Atlanta who have stolen all her stuff and broadcast right. it to the world, everything she owns. She's sitting in an empty house right now with nothing. She literally has nothing except this moniker of the Queen of Christmas. Give it to her. She deserves it. End her suffering. By the way, you, you raise a good point. It all comes full circle. By the way, another piece of Mariah Carey news that we didn't talk about is uh, she, uh, she dissed, uh, what's her name? The, uh, the ex-princess, uh, Harry. What's Harry's? Uh, Meghan Markle. Markle. She gave an interview for Meghan Markle's podcast with, by the way, is now the most downloaded podcast. We're we're pretty close, you know. Us, Joe Rogan, are always neck and neck. But Meghan Markle's podcast is number one. She interviewed Meghan Markle the other day and accused her of being a diva. Big week for, for uh, <laughs> interesting. For Mariah. All right. Well, we got to end off with uh, Orzov again talking about his uh, his medal. Show us your your sweater again, and then I got a surprise for you, Orzov. Yeah, that's yeah. We got the uh, USA. We got the the uh, Maccabee 2013 patch. Uh oh. Uh oh. I don't like it, Rich. Yeah, that's a cool one, but you know, let's all give props to the real gold medalist. And as we know, and <laughs> that's a good-looking sweater, but it won't ever top the original. So, yeah. I think the three ladies that want the Queen of Christmas should do like you guys, just battle it out. You know, just right? get out, and just <laughs> do it by popular vote. <laughs> Mariah needs Queen of Christmas like gear. She needs like a jersey or something. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Rich, I think you're going to have to fight Adam Sandler for the king of Hanukkah. <laughs> I think hey, Rich. Hey, Rich, it's time for you to put, put your, uh, so to speak, your money where your mouth is. You're a Canadian. You're a big hockey fan. The Maccabea Games are, you're Jewish. The next Maccabea Games is 2025. I'll be right. coaching the over 40 USA team. Love to see you out there on the other side of the uh, aisle over there, to, so to speak. Challenge. Put some skates on. There you go. I'm in. Challenge. Excellent. Going to put a little slap shot bounty on you a little bit. Hope you don't mind. There we go. <laughs> well, I'm, put, I'm putting on the foil as we speak. 
Well, stay tuned for that. That's going to do it for the Legal Grab Bag. Big thanks to Michael Orzov, Tony Tate for joining us once again. Another big thanks to our earlier guests of Neil Elon, Lene Erickson, and Professor Caroline Mala Corbin. For our producers, Yvonne Barbosa and Ben Anderson, I'm Joe Brand. Another big thanks to our two hosts of Tina Martini and Rich Lenkoff. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share the Legal Faceoff podcast. Please give us five stars as well. And we will- Joe, Joe, don't forget, check out the newest Stallone sequel, Serpico 2. Yes. <laughs> He's also a great incentive of a woman. Yes. <laughs> just just all types of pop culture, everything you could ever ask for here on the Legal Face Off podcast. We'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. It's Christina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget the